Welcome to the Javadoo Education Podcast, Episode 8. And the things that they're bringing to our classrooms are often invisible to teachers because you and I didn't grow up in a refugee camp. You and I didn't have to flee Central America because of brutality. So it's, you know, whenever we have children who are teaching who grew up in drastically different situations from us, we have to work a lot harder to get to know what their needs are. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hello, teachers and educators. Uh, if you're listening to this in the first few days of its release, happy summer. <laughs> uh, I've got a great show for you today. I sit down with Dr. Jill Swavely to talk about how we can best meet the needs of ESL students in our classroom. And now, uh, especially how we can do it through digital mediums as we are likely to continue online schooling in some capacity this coming fall due to this coronavirus outbreak. We touch on a number of subjects, including uh, the importance of social-emotional well-being um, for all students, but specifically how helping ESL students feel safe and welcome will lead to greater achievement uh, down the road. But before we get into that conversation, uh, I just want to highlight that if you are not part of our Facebook group yet, please come join in on the conversation. Our goal is to grow uh, to 500 teachers by the fall. And boy, I would really like your help. <laughs> uh, you can either find the link to our group uh, on our show notes page, or you can go directly to facebook.com slash groups slash Jabadoo. And speaking of show notes page, we've got a pretty good one, in my humble opinion. I, I always do that. I always say we, like I have a team of people doing this. <laughs> nope, it's just me. Uh, well, at least for the time being. But yes, uh, everything we talk about on this episode, all the resources, all the websites, all the links, you can find all of those by going to jabadoo.com slash show eight. That is J-A-B-B-E-D-U dot com slash show with the number eight. And lastly, before we jump into the conversation, I just wanted to let you know that this episode does conclude our, um, our premiere, our cardinal our uh, inaugural season of the Jabadoo Education Podcast. So we will be taking a break over the summer from producing episodes, um, but we will be back in the fall. And the goal right now is to make it a weekly podcast in the fall as opposed to releasing every other week. Um, we will see if that is sustainable once school starts uh, and, and everything's in full swing, but uh, we're going to be recording some episodes over the summer with the goal of it being a weekly podcast come fall time. So if you haven't already done so, make sure that you are subscribed to our show on your listening platform of choice so that when we do come back in the fall, you won't miss that update. All right. I think that's all. Oh, actually, we are going to create a post in our Facebook group specifically for this episode. And I will give a personal shout out on the first episode of season two to the first person who comments the correct timestamp in this episode of when my dogs decided to bark. 
<laughs> I've got two dogs and they're usually fairly quiet. They're, they're great girls, but alas, my house is not soundproof. So they decided to make sh- sure that uh, they made themselves known in this episode. So again, comment on that post and I'll give you a shout out. Also, shout out to my one listener in France. <laughs> I was looking through my uh, stats the other day and I realized that I have somebody from France who is listening. So I just think that that's so cool. So if, if that is you, if you are that one listener in France... <laughs> Uh, introduce yourself. Either um, go comment in, in our Facebook group or you can shoot me an email. Um, that's john at jabadoo.com. Uh, that's J-O-N, no H, just J-O-N at jabadoo.com. Uh, I would really love to hear from you. Um, okay, enough jibber-jabber. I think that's it. <laughs> Let's dive into our conversation with Dr. Jill Swavely. We've got Jill Swavely on the Jabadoo Education Podcast. Jill, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Awesome. This is, I'm so glad we were able to uh, sit down because I originally reached out to uh, one of your other colleagues and she said, you know what? I'm kind of busy. Yes. <laughs> uh, had a baby on Friday. La- oh no, fr- last Sunday. That's right. Yeah. Um, so congratulations to her. Obviously she'll, she'll be coming on uh, in the future, but for right now she uh, reached out to you and said, Hey, here's this project. I think you'd be a great person. And so I'm happy to have that referral and I'm happy to bring you on uh, to talk about some of your work and some of your research because um, you're doing some great stuff and I'm, I'm happy to dive into it. Looking forward to diving into Thank it. Thank you. And um, Dr. Sandalus also works with me on the same project. Okay. So, so perfect. Mm-hmm. There we go. Cool. Um, so I always like to start out uh, just from the beginning. So can you just let us know what was your school experience? Um, what was your experience as a student? Uh, and kind of just, you know, bring us through uh, your, not not super in-depth, but like through your childhood and high school and college experience, et cetera. Sure. Um, well, I come from a family of educators. So my, um, you know, school was, um, you know, a focus of our, of our household. Um, I have an older sister who excelled in school. And uh, so she kind of set the the trend, she set the bar pretty high actually. Um, and I wasn't as academically successful as she was, although I was still an honors student um, in um, honors classes, college prep. Um, my early, early experiences of school were that when I was in kindergarten, they wanted to promote me up to fifth, up to first grade. <laughs> kindergarten Not to fifth, fifth grade. <laughs> sorry. Um, and the only thing I knew was that I loved my kindergarten teacher and I didn't really understand what that meant. So because of um, emotional reasons, because I really did not want to be moved from that teacher, they never promoted me a grade. And, you know, in retrospect, I think um, that was probably a really good choice. And I've always had mixed feelings of the, around the notion of promoting kids a grade level where, where their, their age and developmental level would be different from their classmates. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I like my birthday falls on the other side of the line. So I should have been the grade above me, but I'm, I was happy that I was held back a year. Not held back, but just kept back yeah, a year. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so when I was young, I also, uh, my mother was a high school English teacher. She was an English teacher in my high school and actually was my English teacher um, at one point in my high school experience. And I'll come back to that. But okay. when I was very young, too young to be at home alone, um, 
when she had to go, go into school the day before and the day after the kids started and stopped, mm -hmm. yep. I would go with her and I would help her with classroom inventory of textbooks, getting things set up. Um, I was her little assistant. But when she didn't need me, I would play teacher on the chalkboard. I would grab, of course, in those days, it was, it was a, chalk a chalkboard. Board, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, throughout grad school for me, it was a chalkboard actually. But um, I would, you know, write on the class board and pretend I would chalkboard, pretend mm -hmm. I was the teacher, um, and always kind of had an affinity for leading a classroom. Um, and so, you know, I went to college. I actually became a journalism major because okay. I loved to write. I didn't go right into education. Um, I, I graduated with a degree in journalism and I emphasized in my classwork um, an avenue toward public relations and marketing. Okay. They had that possible track. Um, I became a little jaded with the news reporting track after taking a class on the history of news reporting and learning from a very, very gifted professor, particularly about um, news reporting during the Vietnam War and the, the controversies around that and the underreporting of really what was happening during the Vietnam War. Okay. That actually got me wondering if that was something I wanted to be a part of. Um, I think yeah. that the media now, I mean, there are a lot Certainly of things yeah. about it. It was just something I chose not to pursue at that age. Sure. So I went into public relations and had a few different jobs within the American Red Cross in downtown Philadelphia. Okay. And the, the, the job that I had before I left there was um, in the blood donor campaign program. As part of that job, I ended up teaching um, these three-hour um, seminars to high school students where we would teach them how to run their own blood drive, you know, what were, what, how to promote it so it was successful, how to advertise it, but also what happened to the blood after it was donated, all of the facts. It was an educational, you know, campaign that we taught to these high school students. And that's when I discovered how much I really did love teaching. And it's just funny. So obviously the listeners won't see this, but I'm watching you on video and you're just, your face is lighting up as you're saying this. So it's, it's just, it parallels oh, what you're saying. That's yeah. yeah it, um, I, it became my favorite part of the job. I couldn't get enough of it. I could yeah. not get enough of teaching these high school students. And so I ended up leaving that position to go back to grad school to get my master's and teaching certification and teaching English at, in high schools. So mm -hmm. I'm, certified in secondary English. Um, while I was in my master's program, I taught a base, at that time it was referred to as a remedial reading course sure. um, to college freshmen who needed uh, more support with their reading skills. Um, so that was happening. And then also I took a, one course, it was an elective with a, a researcher named Rod Ellis who is a pretty big name in the field of applied linguistics. Okay. And that is my current field. Um, and I was incredibly impressed by him as a teacher and researcher and the course material, which focused on teaching English to speakers of other languages. Right. 
So I graduated from my master's degree and two things happened. I found myself teaching. I had an interim, at that time I thought it was an interim job, teaching freshman composition to ESL students at Temple, to undergrads. And also I set a meeting with Rod just to explore the doctoral program that he was heading. And he encouraged me to apply. He offered me funding. So between his his encouragement and my experiences teaching ESL writing, I ended up not going right into high school teaching, but I went into a doctoral program. Okay. Um, my experiences teaching ESL writing were just, my students just blew me away. So these were mostly international students um, who were freshmen at Temple, um, coming from anywhere from um, Kuwait to South America to Russia um, and, um, you know, all over the world, China, Korea. And I was incredibly impressed and with their proficiency levels and the, the um, quality of written language that they were producing in English when they had only been in the United States for a few years. Um, I wanted to know more about that process. You know, what, how is the writing process happening as a second language and how does it happen so efficiently for these students? So throughout my doctoral program, I focused on research in the area of second language writing. And my dissertation was focused on um, college students and their writing, um, specifically on international students taking a required great books course. Um, and these international students were Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, and their experiences with writing in the university and also with the content of what was basically a Western Civ course. Okay. Um, and then I was fortunate to land a faculty position at Temple um, right after I graduated. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. And I've, I just finished my 19th year as faculty. Wow. Um, I, what a year it was. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, but I've stayed at Temple because I, I love the institution. I love the, the urban education emphasis, the social justice mission of our college of education. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remain happy there. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I, I, just, as you were speaking, I had, you know, just this thought, I forget where I uh, learned it or heard it or picked it up, but it was the idea that even our, our realities are, um, we we perceive our realities through our language, right? So some languages have multiple words for different items where other languages only have one word for that item. So the one that comes to mind is um, some Inuit or Eskimo languages have like seven or eight different words for snow, right? And they can they can identify different types of snow because of these different words because it's part of their language whereas we just say oh it's snow (laughs) you know it's interesting that is um they do have a lot of words for snow um and their synonyms for snow are not dissimilar to our synonyms like slush sleet okay gotcha ice um so yeah Mm. there there is the the eskimo myth 
And it's been written about among linguists that really there are a lot of languages who have just as many synonyms. Sure. In terms of though, when you go, so like I, I had five years of Spanish coming through school. So learning another language though, there, there's definitely a, a process of, if you are already fluent in one language, it is the, the process for learning a new language is different than if you learn two languages simultaneously growing up right if yes. you because your brain has already has words for different items so really what you're doing is kind of okay i'm going to translate it to english first and then spit it back out in spanish again yes or well the another notion that's important is that we we have one part of our brain for languages right mm-hmm. um, and languages whether they're acquired simultaneously as a child or acquired you know sequentially mm-hmm. as a child or as an adult they intermingle in our brains um so we don't the the processes and the the complexity of learning a second language are um they go way beyond having like one set of information for one language and one set of information for another one. Sure. There are automatic processes that happen with, with both languages. I feel like I'm not explaining this. No, that's all right. Basically you're saying like after you have learned the language, they start to meld together a little bit, or are you saying the the actual process of learning, they start to meld? Learning um, involves the process of intermingling. Okay. Right from the beginning. Sure. Yeah. It's just one of those things that I, I think, you know, most uh, Americans, uh, certainly I know, I, I've heard it said that people around the world kind of make fun of Americans for only knowing one language, because especially Europe, I mean, everybody, everything's so condensed that it's not uncommon to be fluent in two, three, four, five languages sometimes. Um, it's one of our biases. We only know one language, so it's obviously going to be very hard in our brains to learn a second language. Yeah. I- well, and we're, I mean, we're, we're dominantly, this is changing, fortunately, but we dominant, you know, English is the dominant language of this country. We're dominant monolingual population. As mm-hmm. you said, that's being monolingual globally is not, that's not the majority. That's not the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're absolutely right. I think um, with the mindset and the environment of a dominant monolingual society, it is harder. Yeah. All right. So then um, just transitioning then to school life, right? So we're, we're obviously talking about um, students coming into schools uh, where English is not their pri- primary language. And some of the, uh, hopefully we'll get out of this conversation, just some general ideas of, of how we can help those students when they're in our classroom and not necessarily working specifically on um on their languages. But um, what do you know, you might not know, and that's okay, but where did like this focus on helping uh, students with uh, predominantly speaking different languages um, at home, the process of helping them learn English. How, how, how old is that process? Well, formally, sure. um, I believe it didn't really, like ESL programs didn't formally in an organized way begin until the 60s. Okay. Um, however, English teaching in this country began during colonial times. Sure, sure. When, of course, of course, we had um, 
immigrants from all over the world coming to the new land and Absolutely. British were trying to keep a stronghold, right? Yes, and they were. part of that was introducing English into non-English speaking colonies. Sure. Mostly to adults, not really in the schools. Mm. Um, and that was obviously for economic reasons. I think mm. after World War II, we, we became much more interested in learning foreign languages. And out of that, English language teaching kind of emerged. Sure. But the first organized efforts at language teaching really um, focused on teaching as a foreign language after World War II. Okay. I, I assume part of that is just because the, the connection between the world, obviously, every country got very more interconnected um, with with the advances of technology and telephones and, and all that stuff. Um, so I'm sure that that's- Yeah, and that's ideologies, sorry. Um, yeah, ideologies change too. I mean, initially we, we went from a country that had bilingual schools as a norm because that was the population to, um, you know, after Revolutionary War, there was a trend toward English. Then after mm -hmm. World War One, there was more of a trend. And then, um, um, you know, after World War II, there was a kind of a protectionist. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Huh, that's interesting. I, I, I always appreciate the history behind uh, some of the stuff. And I think it brings to light when you have that conversation about the history, it brings more light to the current situation. So um, just looking at some general ideas like every school is going to be different right every school has a slightly different program based on the needs of the students in that school but i think something that obviously we can do is is starting to help um english as a second language students when they are in our classrooms as you know for me as a music teacher or, you know high school physics is what my mom teaches actually and you know obviously there's there's a learning curve just to understanding the terminology for those those different classes so um, what would be probably some of the toughest things maybe that uh, students face coming into our classrooms? Um, what, let's start with that. What are, what are probably some of the more difficult things that these students face? Um, I would say the A number one thing could be um, social and emotional well-being. Okay. So the number one thing any teacher can do is to work very hard to create a welcoming environment for these children. As you pointed out, there are a lot of variables. It depends on um, was the child actually born in the United States? Have they grown up with um, US, even if they lived in a community where English is not the dominant language, mm -hmm. have they kind of grown up with um, some cultural norms that are peculiar to the United States or their their locale, um, or were are they a refugee from Syria? Mm -hmm. um, it runs the gamut. Actually, the the majority of English learners in our nation's public schools were born here. Okay, I would not have guessed that. Yeah, it's um, you know, like I said, a lot of these students do live in communities where English is not the dominant language, mm -hmm. but they have often grown up with English around them. You know, maybe if they go to um, a doctor's office or at various, sure, various sure. places in their city or their town. Um, so that's one group. And they often 
are more are better integrated socially um, and emotionally. Um, I don't want to make too many generalizations. Right. Yeah, you never can. Yeah, there are challenges that they face um, economically that are often um, need to be taken into account. But that's a very different population from a population of refugees who land in a school and um, they may have PTSD Mm. in addition to finding themselves in a new, completely new environment with a language that they don't know, maybe with a a writing system that they don't know also. Um, Just new language or just writing system in general? A, a writing system, like if they come from an Arabic-based language uh-huh. or an Asian-based language that has a completely different script, then they need to learn the Roman alphabet. Right, sure. Along yeah. with the, every other aspect of the language. Yeah, sure. Um, some of these students will come in knowing, having some knowledge of at least English print. Um, some may not. Mm-hmm. It, it really depends. Yeah. It may not be literate in their native languages, depending on where they're coming from. Sure. Yeah. Um, the um, <clears throat> I worked at the first first three years of my career was at a uh, school out in Colorado, and we had um, a refugee uh, population in in the community. And yeah, I mean there were, there were certainly uh, issues that uh, I just I couldn't imagine that these students had gone through that they did uh, coming into my school and and just. Yeah, the the attempt to help them just feel at home was a lot harder than I was expecting it was going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part. I mean, that's part of Maslow's uh, Maslow's um, yeah yeah hierarchy of needs. I forget uh, we mentioned that on one of the earlier earlier podcasts, but yeah, brings it full circle. Absolutely. Um, That's why I I prioritized. you know, social and emotional well-being, and the, the things that they're bringing to bringing to our classrooms are often invisible to teachers, mm-hmm. because you and I didn't grow up in a refugee camp. Yeah, um, you and I didn't have to flee Central America because of brutality, yeah. um, and you and I probably both grew up pretty economically stable. Yep. So it's you know, whenever we have children who are teaching who grew up in drastically different situations from us we have to work a lot harder to get to know what their needs are and then if they're not proficient in english or fluent in english then we need to find ways of really discovering who they are what their needs are how we can support them yeah that's i think i'm probably not alone when you know if if the title of this is coming out you know how to help esl students in your classroom like my brain just goes to, okay, what are the different strategies that I can do? Yes. And, and in reality, you're saying, and I now, I probably agree with you that just as much as you can make them feel included and safe and uh, welcome in your classroom, that takes care of, again, that uh, hierarchy of need. And then they're able to just cognitively open up and excel quicker once that's taken care of, kind of, right? Absolutely. And at the same time, what we don't want, we we do want to take care of them emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we don't want to do as we're doing that is feel a lot of pity or be too, lower our expectations too much. 
because these are intelligent students who have every capability as any other student of learning. Um, I mean, we have plenty of students who were born in the United States who come to us with PTSD. Sure. Um, so we want to be sure that we're addressing their needs, but also showing them that they are capable of learning by believing in ourselves, yeah. right? Not ignoring um, the fact that our, our goal is also to help them achieve as close to on par as we can with their native English speaking classmates, you know, and that's not going to happen quickly, but it should be the goal, which boils down to doing everything we can to make whatever we're teaching in the classroom that day as comprehensible as possible to every child in the room. So that may mean if even though you teach music and even though a lot of that is, um, taught based on demonstration sure. if your assessments are written or they're based on giving verbal responses there's a lot of language yeah. there right it, I, by your nodding i can tell you you know this um <laughs> yeah. the other the other thing is um you know you give students instruction in english it, instructions directions for activities in english and those need to be made comprehensible to students through doing things, not just through demonstration, but by maybe putting instructions on, on the board, um, maybe translating instructions sometimes for absolute beginners. And that's become so much easier in the last couple of years. You just copy and paste, put it into Google Translate, and you know, for the most part, it, it gets the point across. Yeah, usually. Yeah, as long as their native language is represented in Google Translate. Sure. Yes. <laughs> um, but for most students, it will be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. yeah, I've I I spent a sabbatical working in uh, assisting teachers in a, a newcomer learning academy in a high school in Philadelphia, and I made a lot of use of Google um, Images okay. as well as some use of Google Translate as well as use of my phone, just sitting one-on-one -on -one with a student, making a connection by, um, you know, having them translating something, but also trying to pronounce the words in their language. Yeah. To level the playing field and to show them I respected their language enough to want to learn it, want to learn a few words. And, you know, I mean, it sends a pretty powerful message. Yeah, to and it's, it's always going to be simple things like that, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Okay, um, so let's just pivot just a little bit on the project now that you are currently working with is a um, funded project and I, I don't have the details in front of me, but seems like it, it's, it's going to be really beneficial and really helpful. Um, and it is, what is it? It's transforming school life is kind of what you call it, right? So, yeah. but life is an acronym. So why don't you tell us what that acronym is and kind of what are some of the goals of this research project and uh, kind of what you hope to get out of it? Okay, thank you. We hope it has impact. Um, so LIFE stands for Leadership, Instruction, and Family Engagement. And how that came about was I had, I've had a history of doing um, professional development work in school, variety of schools around within Philly and around the um, counties surrounding Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And teachers would often 
tell me, well, this is all well and good, but I'm, it, it's difficult for me to implement these strategies because of maybe rostering, maybe mm-hmm. because of the scheduling timeline I'm supposed to be on. This is what I'm supposed to teach, and this is a rate at which I'm supposed to teach it. Sure. Um, standardized testing, any number of institutional factors that make implementing good practices for L's possible. So leadership, what the idea a colleague and I had was to offer, to apply for a grant that would offer professional development to teachers, but also to school leaders. So that's where the leadership comes from. Okay. The instruction is offering professional development to the teachers. Family engagement is the third prong of our three-prong project, and that involves educating leaders and teachers on how to best involve families, make them feel welcome, educate families um, in terms of what, what a U.S. school is, what's the structure, what does a school roster look like, um, how can you best... Um, seek resources to help your child succeed in school. So we have, as I mentioned, a PD program for a group of school leaders in our, in each of our participating schools. And that involves um, the, the leaders attending leadership Institute. So these are PD workshops that we have maybe three times a year for our groups. Um, We also have, um, coaching for our leadership teams. We have an, a leadership coach who goes into the schools, meets with them and helps them do needs assessment and school improvement plans around um, improving support for English learners. Our teacher PD program involves um, our teachers taking our four courses in our ESL certificate program at Temple. And we have one-on-one in-class coaching for those teachers as well. Wow. To help them implement the the stuff that they're learning in their classes. And then the family engagement piece also includes delivering ESL courses for the families of our L's, English learners, in our participating schools. So each of our schools now has an adult ESL program. Some of the classes focus on English per se, just teaching everyday English, survival English. Some of the classes focus on things like um, what are some of the questions you might want to ask of a teacher during a a parent-teacher conference. So all of this is designed over, it's a $2.7 million grant. That's a five-year grant. We're entering year five in this upcoming year, actually. And our hope is that through all of these efforts, will ultimately improve students, the L's, English learners, academic achievement and social emotional well-being. Yeah, and I I love that you start with that triangle between the teachers and the administration and the families. Because I think if there's challenges within a, (laughs) if there are challenges within a school community, it's likely because there's a disconnect between one of those relationships, right? Either parents, aren't getting information from the administration and then something comes down the pipeline and they're going, well, we weren't made aware of that. Where is this coming out of? Same thing, obviously, if teachers and administration don't have a great relationship, there's challenges there. And then again, if if teachers and families aren't communicating about what's going on in the classroom, there's another disconnect. So I love that your project 
really focuses in on all three of those to make sure that the the connection there is is made pretty strong and that there are options for uh, helping each one of those pillars. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for recognizing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what what are some of the, um, are you collecting any data with, uh, with, with what you're working on? Yes. Um, a lot of data. <laughs> so what, what are you looking at and kind of what are, hope, what are you hoping to find out of the data? Ultimately, as I said, we're looking at um, increases in student achievement um, through the implementation of our three-prong model. So student achievement is looked at quantitatively through standardized test scores, okay. um, but also access test scores. So that the test that's given to English learners when they enter um, public schools and um, the test that's also given to them annually to measure their their growth in their proficiency. That's the access test score. Okay. Um, we also are looking at graduation rates, SAT scores, and, and even the number of students who take SAT attendance numbers. We also give our students um, a survey uh, multiple times that uh, gets at their beliefs about how they feel in the school, you know, and, and how they feel in the classrooms. We're not asking them directly, do you feel like you're in a welcoming environment? But <laughs> sure, but yeah, the, what survey, elements, yeah. Yeah, the, the questions in the surveys are getting at their beliefs around um, their opportunities for learning within the school as a whole and also in their individual classrooms. What are teachers doing to help them understand um, the content and also make them feel welcomed? And we're also giving them a, a text-based writing assessment to see how maybe um, there there are possibly trends in um, growth with literacy skills because a lot of our the courses in our ESL certificate program emphasize literacy development. Yeah, and I think my guess is that when you look at the, when you wrap up this project and you look at some of the data, you'll probably see a correlation between uh, students who are achieving. Uh, at a higher rate and how welcome they feel in the classroom. I bet you there's a correlation there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, all right. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, we'll have to follow up with you on, on the outcomes of that and kind of the direction it goes, but it, it's, it's a huge project. I mean, it takes a, a ton of coordination. So, um, and it's great that it's, it's over a five-year period because then you can track, you know, the students as they come through the grades and you get, I think probably a clearer picture really of what's happening. Absolutely. And um, we have already, I was just reviewing, we already have preliminary findings that show that the student's perception of a welcoming environment is positively trending in statistical significance in predicting standardized test scores. Okay. So yeah. we have more data to analyze, but we're already seeing some positive results. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Last little pivot transition would be uh, as we move into, you know, as, by the time this comes out, most people will be out of school for the summer. But as we move into fall and the possibility of either being, again, completely online or some sort of hybrid situation with the coronavirus, um, what would be, do you have any resources for teachers 
um, to help students through a digital medium. Um, because I, again, that's another barrier that uh, could present some challenges. So do you have any resources or do you, do you have any suggestions on, on how we can help in that way? Two websites that are wonderful resources are um, tesol.org, T-E-S-O-L dot O-R-G. Yeah. TESOL is an international organization for my field. And okay. they have, um, a few years ago, they came out with a set of six teaching principles for teaching English learners. Hmm. And they recently published a short, a short paper um, on how to use these principles in a distance learning environment or how to implement the principles in a distant learning, learning environment. The first principle, as you might imagine from the way I talk, is getting to know your students. So, um, That's not a surprise. <laughs> yeah, one, one thing that is critical is for teachers to know what resources the students have at home in terms of um, high-speed internet, yeah. in, in terms of, um, you know, uh, hardware and software? Do they have a computer with a webcam or a, or um, microphone? Yeah, and that, that all comes down to access, accessibility. Yeah. Yeah. The foundational stuff. Yeah. Um, one principle that is important for teachers to keep in mind in the classroom and also especially for distance learning is to make sure that they, they make their instructions for activities clear. That's been a challenge for me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I write up some instructions. I go, okay, I, they are going to know exactly what to do. And then I get six or seven emails. Uh, what, are, what is this? <laughs> I go, oh. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the ways of thinking about it is to have somebody else read your instructions or test, mm -hmm. have them with, with one student. Um, give, give the instructions in terms of like bulleted phrases, lists of phrases in clear steps, especially if there are multi-step instructions, yeah. including visuals um, that maybe show the graphics of an instruct or um, including a video where you're talking and you're yeah. demonstrating the instructions. So using multiple modes of communicating instructions is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, and we will um, make sure we include that link. And if I can find the six teaching principles, I'll make sure that I include that as well in our show notes um, and as well as everything else that we talk about on this episode. Okay. I can send them to you as well. That would be perfect. You said there were two. Was that Were those the two or yeah. is there another one? Another useful resource in general, that there's this hub of information on a website called Coloring Colorado. That was one suggested by, I believe it was Karen Dickinson. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, it's, um, I always like to think of resources for teachers as resources that very busy people can easily access and use. Yeah. Right. So Coloring Colorado really hits the mark when it comes to giving good information in a very easily digestible way. And I'm um, just going to the, the most important strategies and facts that teachers need to know. And they cover an incredible array of topics, distance learning being one of them. But with, you know, another, so that is a resource that, that of course teachers can use. 
Um, some of it does go back to knowing your students, possibly by maintaining personal contact through texting even. Mm -hmm. You know, students and parents, students and or parents, you know, it depends on the age of your students, but the parents will inevitably have phones. And many teachers I know communicate with their parents um, using text, yeah. which are easily um, translatable. Okay. Um, and yeah, so true. using text to inform a parent of times when you can, what times when you'll have office hours and the student can access you through Zoom, maybe. Sure. Then you can hopefully maybe talk to the student through a video conference and clarify things and see how they're doing. Yeah. Obviously, this is good for all students, but it's particularly crucial for English learners who um, may or may not already know about some of these resources. Cool. And that, you know, that very well might be the answer to our exit ticket questions, which uh, I think it's about time that we head to those. So these are the same four questions that I ask everyone. And the first one is, do you have a book recommendation? It doesn't necessarily need to be in your field of study, but just every teacher should read this book. It was hard to narrow it down to one. <laughs> <laughs> do you have two or three? Just I'll say two as, or three. As an aside, um, to help teachers understand that literacy, the power of literacy goes far beyond academics, I always recommend Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That was just suggested by, I think it was uh, Maya. Oh, was it? Yeah, I think okay. so, yeah. Yeah, it's... So that's, um, that's number two. That means that if you're listening, you go, hmm, maybe that's a book I should read. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I mean, it, it details his experiences teaching literacy to folks in Brazil where... Um, um, literacy opened the, and these are, were adults, but it opened the door to um, them getting food, you know, them improving yeah. their economic status, and even most importantly, them having a voice. Um, and that's the case for English learners too, the power of literacy and, you know, and having a verbal voice yeah. gives a student the power to advocate for themselves as well. So it goes way beyond academics. Yeah. Um, another um, book that's more recent, but it's near and dear to my heart, is called Dreams and Nightmares. Oh. It's an autobiography that a friend of mine helped um, a, a woman write. Her name is Liliana Velasquez. Okay. And she walked from Guatemala, Guatemala to the United States when she was 14. Wow. She left, uh, an, an, unfortunately, an abusive household and community in her village in Guatemala and decided she didn't want to end up with the future that was kind of set for a lot of women yeah. in the age group at the time. And she left and walked, um, it's about, walked to um, Texas yeah. and ultimately ended up in Lower Marion, um, no went to Lower Marion High School um, and is now at community college and is set to pursue nursing school. Wow. But there were a lot, there was a lot she went through, obviously, on her path to get sure. to the United States. And even 
just by luck, she was able to stay here and uh, paired with a foster, a few foster families, not all of, of which were positive for her. Sure. And um, it gives a window into why someone might take, you know, take these lengths to walk <laughs> as far yeah. as she did. heavens. Yeah. I mean, and, it's, yeah. Anytime you, um, I would, I've had, um, I've, I've been able to experience um, world outside of the United States on a, on a couple of different occasions. And every time you go, you, you get a, a new lens in which to um, view the world. So if you're not able to obviously make that trip abroad because it does cost <laughs> a good bit of money, um, reading uh, books like that um, definitely give a, a window and hopefully a new perspective that I'm sure is really valuable. So um, we will definitely link that in the show notes as well. Yeah, and it also gives a window into her mindset when she arrived here. And um, I think that is really important for teachers to understand because her her goal was not education. Her goal was work. Gotcha. And if when teachers have high school students in their classrooms who may prioritize work over school, that may be difficult for a lot of us yeah. to understand. And I, I think this this really gives a window into that mindset and, right. and why it's justified for a lot right. of students. Huh. Well, I'll have to pick up a copy and read it, read it myself. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, what about, um, you've already given two re resources. Do you have any other resources um, that you can think of right now or were the ones that you mentioned kind of what you were thinking here? I think for starters, um, accessing internet resources like Color and Color, Colorado and the TESOL website um, are really good for teachers because, like I said, they're um, they're it makes they make it easy to find resources. There's also another resource called ESL News that is is mm. good. It it provides um, news in readable formats for teachers to okay. give to students to use during instruction. Okay. So in terms of um, providing content for students, that's a good one. Okay. ESL for News. All right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, awesome. What would be one piece of advice uh, you would give to teachers, especially maybe those who are uh, just starting out in their careers? Respect and befriend the ESL teachers in your school. <laughs> just like the the library or the uh, custodian and the secretary <laughs> yes <laughs> make yeah. sure that your buddies with them <laughs> yeah yeah um they're a wealth of information they often are not recognized as the resource that they are because teachers often don't really know what they do um they teachers know that they either pull out students from their classroom or they push in and they're they're in the classroom assisting but they they don't often have the opportunity to learn why they do what they do. And they often don't recognize the depth of knowledge that the ESL teachers have about these students. So they're yeah. a tremendous resource. Get to know your ESL teacher. Talk to the ESL teacher about the ESL students in your classroom because that person or people will be a wealth of knowledge. Sure. And likely they're probably the, the primary contact that the parents have with the school. 
is likely through that teacher as well. So yeah, you'll definitely get that. Again, the school I was out at in Colorado um, had a number of refugee students and I was pronouncing one student's name wrong for a year and a half. And his culture was not to correct me because I was the authority figure in the classroom. And it wasn't until I had this conversation and she pronounced his name differently. And I went, wait, that's how you say it? And she's like, yes. I'm like, oh my goodness. She's like, no, he wouldn't have corrected you. Like that's just part of his culture. So yeah, they, they are definitely are a wealth of knowledge and they, they know those students much more than, than we probably do. Um, excellent. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Um, if anybody has any questions about either the projects that you're doing or they just got a question, they just want to reach out to you, uh, where would be a good place uh, that they can find you? Well, my email is jill.swavely at temple.edu. So that's J-I-L-L dot S-W-A-V-E-L-Y at temple.edu. So they can please feel free to um, contact me. I love talking with teachers. It's my world. It's what I do. Um, so don't hesitate to contact me. Yeah. And as always, that email, as well as everything else that we've talked about, will be linked in our show notes. Dr. Jill, oh, heavens, Dr. Jill Swavely, thank you so much. Uh, it was a great conversation. And uh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll follow up and, and see what the final outcomes are of your research. And uh, we'll stay in touch. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. And that's a wrap. I think um, my biggest nugget from this episode uh, if you couldn't tell uh, by listening or from the title, is that the the number one strategy to helping ESL students achieve has nothing to do with strategies to help ESL students achieve. <laughs> we have to take care of the emotions before we can expect to teach. And for some of us, that's that's just, it's against our nature, right? We've got deadlines and we've got standardized tests and, and homework to hand out and yada, yada, yada. But that is the least of the worries for some of our ESL students, right? Um, so we have to start where students are and pull them to where we want them to be, but that they won't grab that rope unless they feel safe and welcome. And surprise, surprise, that's not specific to ESL students, is it? So uh, I hope you got as much as I did uh, from that conversation, and I hope you've gotten some valuable information and tools from all the conversations that I've had um, in the last couple episodes. And uh, again, this is our last episode of season one, and we'll be back with season two starting in August. So make sure you are subscribed so that you get that notification when that next episode airs. Um, and as a reminder, just go check out our Facebook group. We'd love to have you become one of our ready jabbering educators. Ah, <laughs> in case any of you are wondering where the term jabadoo came from, it's a combination of the two words, jabbering educators. So I hope you enjoy that little Easter egg there. And I hope it's enough for you to subscribe and check out our Facebook page uh, as, well of our, as well as our show notes, which again, you can find at jabadoo.com slash show eight. And until next time, go teach. Well, enjoy your summer break first. Then in August, <laughs> go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. 
And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. And that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content. And it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.